Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. What's the nicest house you've ever been in? I got the chance earlier today to be at a friend of mine who has a really nice house. And it's um, it's a big house and it has lots of areas for for large groups of people to to gather and enjoy each other's company and huge kitchen where you could do all kinds of great cooking and things. I think about that, especially the last few weeks, because I've been at home cooking food so much and I don't have hardly any counter space. And what counter space I do have is taken up with toaster ovens and my little tiny dishwasher and, and things like that. So I have almost no space to actually like make food and, and cook. So to, to walk into a big, huge kitchen like that is, is pretty remarkable. Uh, they have a big swimming pool that's uh, heated and it's got sort of like the infinity look and you're looking out over the backyard, which, which is uh, overlooking a, a creek and, and, and the woods, and there's you know, sculptures and tree houses and gazebos, and uh, there's a, a pool house with a big, a big huge grilling area out front. Um, they've got um, like a, a baseball field, like a softball field, where we've had lots of church functions and things like that. And they're very generous, and they, they share that space with uh, people all the time. And uh, it's really, it's a really nice house. So I want you to imagine uh, if I were to um, buy that house, okay, and um, I bring you over to check it out, and I say, hey, look at all this stuff, you know, man, look at the TV room, it's huge, and look at the kitchen, and look at the the swimming pool, and just the, the amount of land here, and the, the the woods, and the creek, and all the, the fun places to, to run around, and, and for kids to play, and, you know, what do you think? And if you said, oh, wow, I can't believe the last owner left it like this, you got a lot of work to do, I mean, you're going to have to redo all of this, this is really not, you know, this is... It's too bad, too bad that you bought it in this condition, you know, if that was your reaction to me, you know, buying this really great house, how do you think that I would feel? How would you feel if um, you just renovated your home and I came over and said, oh, I see. Yeah. Why well, you want to renovate? Yeah, this is, this is pretty bad. And you said, no, no, this is the renovation. This is it. This is what we did. Oh, this is what you did. Oh, okay. I mean, how would you feel? How would you feel? Imagine that idea. Well, that's the idea that's happening right in the opening 
of Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple area. Herod's temple was a huge complex. The Temple Mount is still in Israel to this day. So you can uh, just Google pictures of it and see how massive an area it is, how many football fields you know it takes up. And uh, the, the, the temple was, um, I think, the equivalent of about uh, 30 stories tall, something like that. I think there's one building here in Murfreesboro downtown that's like um, 32 stories. And of course, you can see it from almost anywhere because there's nothing else around that is that tall. That's sort of the purpose of uh, Herod's temple having been so so big and massive, built on the same site as Solomon's temple, which was sort of the, the, the first temple. So you have the first temple period, then you have the second temple period. And so we sort of relate ages of time based on um, these 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 uh, constructions, the, the temple. Herod's temple uh, took like 40 years to, to build and renovate and to, and to make into something really huge. Uh, a lot of work was ongoing for, for a long time. I think Herod himself died before it was actually finished. So uh, Herod died and a few years later it was completed while, while Jesus was a, a child. And so here they are. They're now in the finally completed temple area and they're looking at everything. And of course, the disciples are very impressed. Now, where are these guys from? They're from Galilee. So in the context of Israel, if Jerusalem is like Nashville, well, Galilee uh, is maybe kind of like McMinnville, you know, or Manchester or something. Um, if um, if Jerusalem is, is you know, uh, Chattanooga, then uh, Galilee, well, it's, it's a little bit like maybe like Polk County, you know, Calhoun, something like that. Right. And so here are these guys. They kind of live out in the sticks. They're fishermen. They live in a mostly agrarian place. I mean, there's there's city and there's industry and those kind of those kinds of things in, in the Galilee. It wasn't completely backwards, but certainly by someone who lived and grew up and um, did business in and around Jerusalem, Galilee was considered kind of redneck territory. It was where all the farmers were and where all the fishermen were. It was not where the, the learners were. The learners came to the big city to learn things. And of course, all the festivals were here. And of course, God himself was here. And so why would you want to be out there with the pagans up in Sticksville, up in Galilee? And we see that kind of attitude. I related the story a couple of lessons ago about Nicodemus, where in at the end of John chapter seven, he sort of makes the case, well, wait a minute, shouldn't we parse some of this information out? And they say, are you from Galilee too? And they're not questioning where he's from or trying to find some kind of allegiance or something like that. It's an insult. They're saying, Hey, are you, are, are you some, you know, inbred hillbilly also? That's the, the idea behind that question. It's meant to be insulting. It's these, these learned men of the city uh, don't have anything to do with these hayseeds from Galilee. So here you have these guys from Galilee, right? And that's an unfair picture that's painted of them from, from the, the people who think that they're smart and living in the city. But the reality is that they come to Jerusalem only to come to the, the festivals. Uh, they may not even come to all of those, but they're, they're here, they're with Jesus, and they're really impressed. I mean, I, I've been to the ruins, and I got to say, the ruins are pretty impressive. <laughs> you know, even the ruins is kind of like, how did they build this? Um, I've got a video and um, the uh, link, which I will put on the screen so that you can jot it down if you like is vimeo.com slash on demand slash 
here zero one. That's H E R E, like right here. Here zero one. Uh, some of the footage from uh, when I went to Israel with David Young, our first trip has been edited and has been uh, available for sale on Vimeo for some time. You can find it here. Um, and then there's the second volume is here zero two. There's a volume two. And so you can go there and you can rent them or buy the modules. They're very short, but it just features David Young standing in front of whatever thing and, and giving some context about it, a little bit of history, possibly some spiritual application. One of the videos, and I believe it's in volume two, I think volume two, volume one, I think is all around Galilee and volume two is all around the temple, if I remember correctly. But uh, one of the videos is at the temple. So if you go to the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, one of the uh, pieces of territory that was claimed by Israel during the Six-Day War was what's now known as the Western Wall. You may have heard it referred to as the Wailing Wall. It's called the Wailing Wall because the Orthodox Jews will go and they will practice their recitations of scripture at the wall because that's the closest they can get to the temple. They're trying to recreate a, a temple experience from 2000 years ago. And so they'll go and they'll face the wall and they will recite their scriptures. And when they do that, they have these movements kind of like rocking, which um, is to help them with the memorization. It's, it's sort of like when we um, create songs from scripture, uh, a lot of us that grew up in Church of Christ know this, the, the singing group acapella has songs taken really directly from scripture. Some scriptures I have memorized because of these acapella songs, or maybe some of the vacation Bible school songs that we had, you know, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, right? So I, I know that verse because I can sing that song, right? And you don't have to do that when you sing it, but it sure helps, you know? And so when 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 they are repeating their scripture that um, motion and that that repetitive motion is something that's sort of like a mnemonic. It's, a, it's something that helps them remember the, the rhythm of the scripture that they're reading, uh, especially something like a psalm or something like that that would have a have a rhythm and a, and a meter and, and read like poetry. And as they're doing it, they're mumbling, they're, they're crying out. And so they're not wailing, they're not crying, but to the people who are not Jews looking at them, it looks like they are crying over their over their destroyed temple. Well, which was destroyed uh, by the Romans in 70 AD. And so what you have is you have a massive wall there and you have 2000 years of things that have been built up around it. So you may not realize this because we don't really do this here in America, but in the ancient world, when you when something was destroyed, so take a building. So if you had a building, it would be stones, uh, bricks stacked on top of each other. And so if you were an invading army and you came in and you wanted to destroy it, this is what Rome, uh, the Romans did with the temple in 70 AD. Then you would set fire to everything that would burn. Of course, rock isn't going to burn, but all the, all the wood would burn and the curtains and all these things. And you would uh, pillage everything that you wanted to keep, all the gold and bronze and all that stuff you would just take and keep for yourself. Take some mementos. And then you would uh, take the, the stones and you would throw them down from the top of the wall and you would throw them down. And eventually you would throw down enough stones that the pile of stones you've made from throwing down is, you know, at the height of your feet where you're now standing on what's left of the wall. And so literally no more stones could be thrown down because at this point you would be throwing stones up and who wants to do that? That defeats the point. The only reason you're destroying 
the building is so a so it can no longer be used but b you're doing it to shame the people that once used that building to let them know you're in charge that you own this place and they don't so there's really no point in spending extra energy to throw rocks up to throw bricks up doesn't make any sense so um the benefit of that then is when archaeologists come along hundreds of years later and they begin excavating these sites as they remove the piles of bricks and rocks, eventually they will get to an organized set of stacked bricks and rocks. This is why when you see an archaeological site, many times you will see a little sort of one foot tall wall going all the way around and sort of laying out where the building used to be. And so you might ask yourself, well, how did how did this much of the building survive and not the rest of it? Well, that's how the rest of it was all sort of laying flush with that that one foot tall and so that it ended up preserving that little bit. Well, the same thing has happened right there at the Western Wall. So the images that you have probably seen uh, many times of the Orthodox Jews there praying at the Western Wall, beneath that, there's a lot of excavations going on. You can actually take a tour of it, as I have. One of the stones down there is a single stone that is the length of a 747. Single stone. And it's probably, I don't know, six or eight feet tall. I mean, it's a huge huge stone. If you get the um, the video in the second volume uh, where we're at the, the temple, underground in the temple, you'll see some video of that particular stone. It is a massive, massive stone. And at this point, it's underground. It was not underground during the time of Christ, but it is underground now. But you can go down there and they've dug out around it and they've dug out some of the marketplaces and things down around there. And all of this to say, as a construction project, as a piece of architecture, as a piece of history, as a piece of archaeology, there is nothing about the Temple Mount that is short of amazing. I mean, it's really a feat of human ingenuity. I mean, how do you, how do you cut out a stone that big from wherever you get it from and then move it into place? And there's no mortar or anything used in any of the stones around the Temple Mount. They, they all fit nice and flush. You've got little tiny cracks where you can kind of uh, roll up. You, people like to write prayers and roll them up and stick them in the wall. Uh, it's this thing that you can do. And there's all kinds of little things stuck in there. But there's there's not a lot of room. I mean, it's, it's even thousands of years later, you know, here 2,000 years later, it's it's they're nice and flush. There's no daylight coming through there. It's really remarkable how it was made. And so we go to the text now. And... And look at how Jesus responds to this same amazing wonder. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, oh, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. It's kind of a buzzkill, right? You know, the, the the disciples are going, wow, Jesus, you know, what do you think about all this? And and Jesus' answer is, yeah, not much, you know, it's all going to be destroyed in a little bit. So, so really not a big deal. And you can imagine that the shock, how that would grab the attention of the disciples. And so this is Jesus's opener. This gives him, uh, this gets his foot in the door. This gives him a foothold to be able to give the fifth and final discourse of Matthew, what will be known as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's known as the Olivet Discourse is because um, it's assumed most of this was given on the Mount of Olives. And so it's named after the place where it was given. I want to show just one more time the five discourses that we have in Matthew. So the very beginning of Matthew, the first two chapters is Jesus being born. And uh, beginning in chapter 26 and forward, we have the um, 
you know, the, the, the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection and Great Commission and all that. So the, the meat of Matthew from 2 to 25 is five discourses preceded by five narratives. So you have narrative and discourse. I've made the case based on looking at all the chiastic structure things from the Old Testament. Here's Matthew. He's Jewish. He's trying to write something that very much mimics Jewish scripture. He's got genealogies. He's got the number five in there that's reminding you of Moses. He's showing that Jesus is like Moses, but better. He's like Abraham, but better. He's like Judah, but better. He's like David. He's like Solomon, but better. Right. Um, and so there's all kinds of Old Testament imagery, and he's referring to all these prophecies that are being fulfilled. And so I've made the case that it seems to me, Matthew would also use the techniques of the Old Testament writers, not just replicate their content, but would replicate maybe their style. And so if we look at these five discourses in a chiastic way, then this final fifth discourse about the kingdom age, what it's going to look like when everything is fully under the reign of God. So we have sort of you know, God is here now and the rain is is begun and is and is going out, but there's going to be a point in time, as we'll we'll see clearly in these scriptures, there's going to be a point in time where it's going to only be the reign of God after that. And what will that look like? And so we're going to compare this in a number of ways to the first discourse back during the kingdom announced. What was the first discourse? Matthew chapter five through seven. What does Jesus talk about? What's the Sermon on the Mount? So you're very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. We love it. It uh, seems like it's a very comforting and encouraging uh, sermon. But when you really dig deep into it, he's really taking religious people to task. It's not about lost people versus safe people. It's not about the world versus the church. It's about religious people versus disciples. And he says, if you're going to be just a religious person, then you're a hypocrite. If you're going to be a disciple, this is what your life is going to look like. If you're going to pray in this way, you're a religious person. But if you're going to pray like this, now you're a disciple. If you're going to give like this, well, you're just a religious person. But if you're going to give like this, now you're a disciple. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at the kingdom age and we're going to see that same delineation between the hypocrites and the people who are true disciples. So uh, a lot of the things about the end of time and the judgment uh, are not even necessarily about those who are lost, but rather this is a very important context to understand. Remember, Matthew is trying to talk to his fellow Jews. That's the reason he's writing this gospel. That's the reason he's written this out. Matthew is trying to convince his fellow Jews who think that they're good, who think that they're in, who think that they're going to be judged well, who, who think they have done all these things in the name of the Lord. He's trying to let them know if you're only religious, if you're just holding on, clinging on to the old religion, you're, you're, you're one of these hypocrites that Jesus is talking about. But if you're a disciple then you will be judged as if you are righteous. And so uh, you can see already, before we even read it, how the Kingdom Age discourse, the Olivet Mount Olive discourse, is going to parallel with the Sermon on the Mount. Another thing just to keep in mind is that this Olivet discourse, just like the Sermon on the Mount discourse, it is an amalgam. It is a lot of teachings collected together in one spot. Matthew picks this place as a great place to share all of these things together at once. Did Jesus deliver them word for word as we have them here in this order with no breaks and they were all at this one time? Hey, maybe so. Maybe so. But there's no reason to think that and there's no reason to to, to 
to hold on to that. Uh, these are teachings about the end of time and about the kingdom age that are uh, opportunistic for Matthew's structure that he has and the argument that he's making about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the son of God. Did Jesus say all these things? Absolutely. Are they true? Every single one of them. Uh, I'm just saying that maybe all of these things didn't get said at once, or maybe more things were said, and this is a reduction, those kinds of things. So, uh, when we approach scripture and we, we try to hold on to things too tightly, when we look at two different gospels and the wording's a little different, it, it seems like it's a problem. But if we understand that the, the authors are taking what Jesus said and putting it into the context of the story that they're telling, then the few little discrepancies or a few little changes in wordings that we, we see throughout the gospels, it's not a big deal. We can look at those and go, yeah, Jesus said both of these. These are both accurate accounts of the, of, you know, of the same situation. Just because Matthew's is shorter or Luke has more details or whatever doesn't mean that they're uh, separate events or different events. Maybe they were, but um, so we're looking at now this uh, sort of compiled discourse here, and it's all about the kingdom age and it's all about the judgment that's coming. So let's uh, read it all. And I'll make just a few comments and we'll be done. So we're picking up where we left off in verse three. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he's really shocked them by telling them that the, the temple is going to be torn down. Remember, again, uh, as I said a moment ago, the temple represented uh, more than just, it was, it was not like a church building to us. I mean, that was where God lived. And it represented uh, an entire era of the history of the, the, the Judean people, of the, of the Israelite people. So first you had the era in which um, God and man Man was living on the earth and could communicate with God. And, and then you had the era that begins with Abraham. And then you have the time period in which they're in slavery. And then God appears to Moses. And what happens? Almost immediately, as in the desert, they build the tabernacle. And so you have the tabernacle period and you have God traveling around in this tent. The tent eventually settles at Shiloh. The, the tent eventually settles at Shiloh and stays there for long time, four centuries plus. That was an era. The Shiloh period of time, that was an era. And a lot of things happened while God and his temple, God and his tabernacle were there at Shiloh. Then David comes along. Shiloh is gone. Tabernacle is gone. Ark of the Covenant is, is missing for a while. And David secures Jerusalem and makes that his capital. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And they set up a, a new temporary tabernacle there. But David wants to build a temple. God says, you can't because you've been in all these wars. You're a man of blood. Um, but your son, your son will do it. And so Solomon builds the temple. And so the first temple is Solomon's temple. It was for its time a really magnificent piece of architecture. And so Solomon builds the temple. And that temple lasts for a while, lasts until essentially the captivity. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they come back and they, they, they rebuild some things on it, but it's not really hugely overdone and rebuilt until Herod comes along. That's the, the second temple period. He, Herod builds this, this big, huge 
uh, temple. And so, um, as you can hear, first temple period, second temple period, tabernacle period, these whole eras of the history of the people of Israel are wrapped up in where to worship, are wrapped up in where God lives. And so when they hear that this temple is going to be destroyed, they're not just hearing, oh, well, this is a cool building. I kind of hate to see it go down. What they're hearing is this era is going to end. The only thing I can even uh, parallel it to for an American, and this is a non-religious analogy, but it's the only thing that I can really think of, is September 11th, honestly, which is something that we celebrated just days ago. Uh, not celebrated, but but memorialized just days ago. We remembered it. Um, we remember when um, these these buildings fell down, and most of us don't have any kind of connection, any kind of personal connection to anything that went on in those buildings or anything like that. But when we saw it on TV and we saw that we were under attack by an enemy, we knew things in America were were going to change. And there's been a lot of things in America that have not been the same since. You know, I watch uh, movies where uh, families are, are seeing uh, people get on the plane, you know, and waving to them at, at, at the gate. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, um, I'm seeing uh, people um, uh, diehards, one of my favorite movies, you know, and he's a police officer and he's putting something at the very beginning of the movies. He's getting something out of his out of the carry on. And the passenger he's been sitting next to it's the first time he notices the gun he has holstered. Uh, under his jacket. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. There's a lot of uh, uh, things that have changed. There's a lot of fear that has happened. And so you can think about how we were kind of living our life. And then one day these buildings were destroyed and suddenly there was a lot of things about our life changed and a lot of things about our understanding of what it means to be an American and how the world views us and 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 what it might mean to go to war and, and things like that it changed just in an instant. So when Jesus says this to them, and says this temple is going to be gone, you can imagine how that would weigh on them, something that's so central to their belief in God. And they would say, well, you got to tell us about this. I mean, uh, when's this going to happen? And so that's what they're doing. Verse four, Jesus replied to them, watch out. No one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. You see that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginnings of labor pains. Now, it's very tempting to watch the news this afternoon and see things on fire and see tropical storms and see uh, cities being burned to the ground and see war going on and all kinds of turmoil and all kinds of things like that and assume this is it. This is what Jesus was talking about. And you know what? It might be. Okay. But also almost every generation since Jesus uttered these words has has believed that the world was going to end in their time, that Jesus was going to come back in their time. One of these generations will eventually be right, and maybe it's ours. But all the ones preceding us, you know, believe that surely, oh, World War II, World War I, clearly, you know, uh, this is what Jesus was talking about. And just go backwards through all the wars of, of history. If you look at what Jesus says, it's actually really kind of vague. You know, he's just saying, look, there's going to be war, there's going to be the, the this earth is going to turn is what Jesus is saying. And all the things that you see, that all these things are going to happen and they're just labor pains. What he's saying is you're going to see them and you're going to think this is it. 
But I'm telling you, don't be deceived. It's just labor pains. You're, you're having contractions in your, you know, in your seventh month or your eighth month or something. You're not, you're not having the baby yet. You're just, it's just labor pains. Okay. And so he's warning them. Don't ascribe too much importance to some of the things that you see. It's amazing how people will take this and immediately take the opposite meaning. Let's continue. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Again, two things here. It's easy to look at persecutions going on in China, North Korea, Iran, uh, to look at the way uh, we're not really the home team in America anymore and take this text and, and apply it to s- certain specific events that are happening today. Again, Jesus' Jesus's language here is pretty vague. Uh, he says, uh, you know, persecution is going to happen. Uh, lawlessness is going to happen. Betrayal is going to happen. Apostasy is going to happen. Um, all these things are going to happen. But with all these things happening, the gospel is going to be preached. The good news is going to be shared throughout the whole world. And once all of these things have kind of taken place, then the end will come. And um, the other thing that he says here, in, in, in part from, from being vague and saying that these things will you know, just naturally happen in the world and they will continue to happen. One thing he sort of guarantees us is we're going to experience persecution. Now, of course, he's speaking to the 12 in this moment, so he may be speaking something specific directly to them. But remember that Matthew is relating it to us. So there's two things that we can learn. One, we learn what Jesus said to his disciples, and that's important, something for us to know. But two, it does have some relevance for us as well. Anyone who follows Christ is going to lose something. In fact, Jesus commands it, right? Deny yourself, he says. Take up your cross, all right, the cross is not a, um, you don't take a cross on a vacation, right? It's a death sentence, okay? Take up your electric chair. Oh, you mean my massage chair? No, no, your, your torture device, right? He's letting you know you're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience opposition. You're going to experience hard times. And because of that, some people are going to fall away. But all these things happen and the good news will be spread and then the end will come. Then he warns them of of some possibly specific things here. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, parentheses, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So let the reader understand. What does that mean? Well, one of the Caesars put up some Roman eagle um the iconography in the temple, and I believe even in the Holy of Holies. And um, one of them, I think, tried to sacrifice a pig on the altar, which, of course, a Jew, the pig is unclean, would have been a horrific thing to, to have done. This phrase, the abomination of desolation, is taken from the book of Daniel. And what Daniel is uh, predicting or speaking of is when there was apparently a uh, a statue of Zeus that was built and put in the Holy of Holies um, about a century and a half before Jesus was born. 
And this was an abomination of desolation. This was a false God being put into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest is supposed to go. God himself is the only one really allowed in there except for the high priest once a year. And so for pagans to walk in there and desecrate it like that uh, really just was a shameful thing to do, an evil thing to do. And so as Matthew is saying, let the reader understand what he's saying is I'm speaking here kind of cryptically, but you know what I'm talking about. And again, a Jew would certainly know about, uh, I believe it's um, Epiphanes IV, um, who um, was the one that put up the, uh, the, the statue of Zeus. And it may be that this uh, Gospel of Matthew was written, or maybe this part was added after the temple was destroyed, or it may be referring to those that eagle iconography that, had, that was um, put up after Jesus makes this speech, but before Matthew finished writing the Gospel of Matthew. So it could point to some numerous specific things, all dealing with the temple. But in a general sense, you can see the meaning. When you see um, you know, pagan, evil, idolatrous things taking over the holy things, take note. And in this case, he says, those in Judea got to get out of here. So one reason Matthew is relating this in particular is because Jesus is essentially predicting what is eventually going to happen to the temple. Remember, he just said the temple is going to be destroyed. That's what they're asking about. So now Jesus is getting drilling down into talking from all these vague things into talking about the very specific thing that's going to happen in 70 AD. Uh, I believe Matthew was written before 70 AD, but um, there's lots of reasons to trust Matthew as a text and Matthew as a text is saying that Jesus talked about these things well before 70 AD, 40 years before 70 AD. So let's go back to the text. Um, verse 17, a man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. You can imagine how tough it is for pregnant and nursing women now. Imagine no air conditioning. Imagine um, you're still having to, to cook and take care of all the other children because you have six or eight. You know, uh, imagine the the temperatures and the heat and the weather. Imagine that you live in a place made mostly of stone and sand, and um, and now imagine an invading empire is destroying your home. So, like a lot of these people who are evacuating now from the wildfires in California, some of them are going to return and and have nothing. And so Jesus is saying, well, it's going to be a bad time. It's particularly for um, pregnant women and nursing mothers. Again, I just want you to see um, how Jesus keeps in mind those who don't really have a voice to speak for themselves. In this culture, a pregnant woman, a nursing mother, that was somebody who stayed home. She was invisible to society. She's not invisible to Jesus. Verse 20, pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So pray it's not too cold to go out and also pray it's not on a Sabbath so you can walk far enough to get out of here. For at that time, there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see here is the Messiah or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So once again, Jesus is using kind of vague language to say, hey, there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be false messiahs. They're going to do great signs. They're going to be really convincing. Don't believe them. Only believe what I'm telling you right now. And he's saying it's going to lead people astray, even some of the elect. In other words, it's going to lead people who are actually disciples. It's going to lead them away. 
Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the 12. Who's part of that group? A guy named Judas. Judas is there. Judas is going to be led astray. It's impossible for them to conceive of it as Jesus is saying it. But after the fact, they'll understand how wise Jesus is. Take note, verse 25, I've told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. So uh, this reference to the Son of Man, again, is taken from Daniel. In Daniel, the Son of Man comes on clouds. It's a, it's a great sign in the sky. There's lightning and light. And Jesus is repeating that here. And he's saying, uh, some little guy doing a magic trick, don't worry about him. You'll know when I come back. You'll know because the sky will split open and I will come riding on lightning. <laughs> You'll know. You'll know when I come back. Uh, and then this phrase is very curious. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather was possibly a proverb in Jesus's day. And so probably was immediately understood by the people hearing it at the time. It sounds a little weird to us, but what Jesus is saying is uh, any, anybody that lives near a farm, we see this on our farm in, in Franklin County all the time. You look up and you'll see some buzzards circling. When dad sees that at the farm, he'll, he'll go ride around to see if maybe um, hopefully something's not dead. A lot of times it's just a, a cow has had a calf. And, and so all, there's all the afterbirth and everything there from the calf and the vultures are, are circling and they're, they're, they're waiting for people to move on so they can, they can have it that, but sometimes it's roadkill out in the street, out near the farm, something like that. But the fact of the matter is when you see those vultures circling, you know, something's dead, something's dead somewhere. And so what Jesus is saying is when you see all these signs, you'll know something's coming. You'll know it. You'll understand. It might also be a reference to the Pharisees, right? Because um, here they are. They're sort of circling Jesus, right? And Jesus is sort of letting them, his disciples know, I've told you, I'm going to have to die. And, you know, you can see how angry the, the Pharisees are getting. It's not just arguments and trying and trick questions anymore. Like you're about to see this is the end. So he continues talking about, the son of man immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. One of the best dreams I ever had was I was in, uh, I guess this was back when I was living in Memphis, maybe as even as a student. And I was in a little tiny compact car. My friend Ryan Richardson had this little Toyota Celica and there were four of us in there. It was me and Ryan Richardson, a couple other people. I forget who, who it was. And we were driving around and I, in my dream, I knew we were looking for something, but I, I didn't know what we were looking for, but I knew we were looking for it. It was like, oh, it's here. It's nearby. It's, it's, it's real close. It's real close. And then I could look through this, this, the, the city buildings there in Memphis and I could see the sky and I could see bodies flying up into the sky. I said, there it is, there it is. Here it comes, here it comes. And we stopped the car and we got out. We just stood on the sidewalk and you could see it was like a wave. The, the, the bodies that were farther away were higher up. Bodies that were closer were just beginning to rise in the sky. And it was almost like it was a wave and it was coming toward us. And soon it came to where we were and we picked up off the ground and we went into the sky and I realized we're going to meet Jesus. We're going to meet him in the sky. And I was, you know, you have dreams where you're flying. So it was like that, but just, just this euphoria. And I was like, oh, this is so great. I can't wait. And then I woke up and I was so disappointed. It was just a dream that that might 
the feeling that I had during that dream may be the best feeling I've ever had in my life. And so you see Jesus talking about this idea here that he's going to come back and he's going to gather his elect. Let's continue reading. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Jesus is saying, you guys can see the signs. You guys know when trouble comes. You guys know when there's opposition. You guys can see when the, when the world is ready for, for a savior. You guys can see it happening. I got to tell you, I watched TV. I watched the news. I'm looking at things going on and I'm going, I don't know. I mean, if I was a betting person, these look like some pretty serious labor pains to me. Uh, but And you can see here, Jesus is using words like immediately. And he says, this generation will not pass away. Wait, wait a minute. You mean the generation of the people that you're speaking to right now? Because they passed away a long time ago. So has this already happened? So what Jesus is talking about when he says this generation will surely not pass away, he's talking about this age, this age of people, this age of of, of the human experience, possibly the, the the whole human age that began with Adam could be what he's referring to. And if you think I'm not being literal enough, look at what he says in the very next phrase. Now concerning the day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, except the father alone, uh, the father alone, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. In other words, Jesus himself doesn't know when it's going to happen. So he surely can't mean it's going to happen after this, before this generation dies. That means Jesus would kind of have some kind of clue when it was going to happen and that it was a long time ago. So when Jesus is talking about this generation, he means, you know, this, this age of humankind that we are currently experiencing, you and I are still part of the generation that Jesus was speaking about. So we still wait for him to return. Um, Continuing on in, in verse 38, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the son of man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Um, this has been converted into some kind of... Um, very literal understanding of something called the rapture. Uh, I do believe in a general rapture. Rapture just means a catching up. Yes, that we just read. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take the elect. He's going to take his disciples. He's going to take those who have been made righteous by his blood and he's going to gather them up. Um, is it going to happen like the movie Left Behind? Is it going to happen the way Tim LaHaye you know, lays out in the whole book series? Um I've heard a lot of people talk about a lot of sort of rapture theology and thousand years this and all this stuff. And I, I get that they're getting it from scripture, but it's kind of a head scratcher to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I think what Jesus is just saying here, again, let's not put too fine a tip point on what Jesus is saying. He's using some vague language. He's saying people are going to be living their lives and suddenly the end is going to come and one person is going to survive it and the other person isn't. I think that's simply what Jesus is saying. And I don't think we should put too much more on it than just that. Um, so be alert because you don't know when your Lord is coming, but know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you're also to be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So one of two things could happen in any instant. 
you could die or Jesus could return. So even if Jesus is not going to return for 100,000 years, you could die tomorrow. You could die at the end of this sentence. So always have to be ready. Jesus impressing them with that. Who then is a wise and faithful servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, well, my master's delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And with the use of that word hypocrites, Jesus draws their understanding of what it means for the temple to be destroyed and really ties it in with the judgment of God. Yes, it was the Roman army that actually destroyed the actual building. But what is happening here, Jesus is letting them know this is going to be part of the judgment of God on the hypocrites, on the Pharisees, because they did not believe when God came to them with the truth. And so Jesus is talking once again about righteousness uh, versus just religion for itself. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. We have the parable of the 10 virgins. So he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. We've had kingdom parables before. The kingdom is like parables. This one is the kingdom will be like. So again, Jesus is talking about what it will be like when the age comes. Once again, to compare back to the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount is this is what it would look like if God were reigning over your life. And now comparing that with the final fifth discourse, Jesus is saying, this is what it will look like when God reigns over everything of all the creation, when heaven and earth are wiped away, but my words last and the, the new heaven and the new earth are here. And so he gives this parable of a wedding and the 10 virgins and we won't take time to read that now. You can read that, but it's really just about being prepared. Then we have the parable of the, of the talents, um, a parable you're likely familiar with. We won't read that either for time's sake. Um, but again, it's not only about being prepared, but it's about using your time wisely. And so what Jesus is saying is you value how cool the temple is and how important it is and how expensive it is and how long it took to build. And I, I'm telling you, I don't care about that. That's going to be destroyed in a little bit. And in fact, I'm really going to be behind the destroying of it because it's to teach a lesson to those who are religious and hypocrites. So what Jesus is saying is my value system is not your value system. So the thing that you value, you, you know, is that, that's how you're going to live your life. If you value what I value, then you're going to use your time wisely and you're going to create more of what I value. So in the story of the talents, you see that the master gives his talents to the servants and the servants create more of what already exists. Um, this is uh, not just ideas about investment. I mean, this is this is about um, about anything. If you think positive thoughts, you will reap more positive thoughts. If you um, think positive thoughts, you will reap positive actions. If you uh, saturate yourself with gratitude, then you you will be a kind and loving person to other people. This is not just about financial investments. This is about any kind of investment. Anytime you invest in something, you're going to create more of whatever that thing is. And so Jesus is saying, be careful what you value. Do you value a building or do you value the one that you worship? And so that's the point of the parable of the talents. And once again, he's thrown out to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place where those hypocrites are. 
And so look how 25 ends with this idea of the sheep and the goats, that the sheep will be on the right, the goats will be on the left. And he will say to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these Brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So again, this idea of the least of these is drawing back to a couple of times when Jesus has mentioned children. Um, I believe in the last narrative, that idea of children was brought up once again. And so you see uh, Jesus, notice what the king, notice what the Lord says on that day of judgment. He doesn't say, come on in, all you who are righteous, because... You had all the right answers. You got all of your theology right. You got you just really nailed all of your doctrine. You could support it all. You had book, chapter, and verse memorized. You you could you could draw out a map of the twelve tribes of you know of Israel during the time of Joshua. You you knew all the dates of the captivities, and you knew the difference between Israel and 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 Judah, and you, you knew uh, what the deal with the Samaritans was. He doesn't mention any of those things. Look, look at what the arguments Jesus gets into with the Pharisees. Well, what about this finer point? And what about this little gotcha question? And, and how about this piece of knowledge? And what do you know about the law? And how would you teach in this kind of scenario? What are they not doing? They're, they're, not, they're, not, doing, they're not doing any of the commandments. They're arguing about the commandments, but they're not doing them. Jesus says your idea of righteousness should be greater than that of the Pharisees. They talk a good game, but they don't do any of it. You should, you should both know it and do it. That's what Jesus says. You should know what they know, but you should also do what they know because they don't do what they know. And so what you see here in the judgment, Jesus says, you're going to come in, you're righteous. And the reason I know you is because of what you did, because you loved your neighbor as yourself. You showed that you loved me by loving my other children, by loving my brothers and sisters. And he's saying this to people who don't even seem to be aware that they were doing such things. The, the harder thing to grasp is the next section, the final section here. Verse 41, then he will say also to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. They too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, without clothes, sick, in prison, and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So again, you have people who think they've been living their life for the Lord. They've been going to the right kind of church. They've been believing the right kind of thing. They've been worshiping the right kind of way. They've been friends with the right kind of people. They don't cuss too much. They don't do this too much. They don't do that too much, right? And what's Jesus going to say? I don't, I don't know you because when I was doing things, you weren't doing any of those things with me. When I was loving people, you weren't out there loving. You weren't doing anything. How could I know you? We didn't spend any time together. If you show up in somebody's office and sit in their lobby, you know, for an hour a week, does that mean that you know the people that work there? No. 
my, my dad worked in a factory. And every time we called to talk to him, which was not often, but anytime we called to talk to him, we always had to wait because he was out on the factory floor with, with his workers. He was a manager. He had a desk job. He was never at his desk. He was always out with his workers. He was out under some oven getting something fixed, or he was out uh, checking some quality thing or, or hearing a complaint from one of the workers. And when he retired, the workers let him know how much they loved him and how much they missed him. They, they, they were pulling their spare change out of their pockets to donate to his gift because they loved him so much because he was out there with them. So imagine if you wanted to be a disciple of my dad and you went and sat in his office for an hour a week, what would you learn? Nothing. You learn nothing. And what would my dad learn about you? Nothing. Cause he wasn't in there. He was out doing stuff. And so that's what Jesus is saying here is, Hey, you may have talked a good game you might have even known all the right answers. You might've known book, chapter and verse. You might've had the right theology and the right doctrine, but you didn't do any of it. So what difference does it make? Yeah, you know who I am, but I don't know who you are. And look at the way it ends. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice that this discourse ends in almost the exact same way as the Sermon on the Mount discourse. How does Sermon on the Mount end? Those who hear my words and put them into practice will be like those who build their house on the rock. But those who hear these words and do not put them into practice or those who like build their house on the sand and their house will collapse with a great crash. This is a very similar kind of ending here in Matthew 25. Those who are the sheep are those who do what I have taught. Jesus is being much more explicit now, less parable and more explicit. And those who are the goats, those who do not do what I teach, those will go to eternal punishment. But the righteous will go to eternal life. And with this, we end the fifth discourse. We end the entire narrative and discourse section of Matthew, and we set up for the climax of Matthew, which is what we call the, the passion play, all the passion events that are about to happen with um, Jesus's um, arrest and, and trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So I'm going to leave you with this as we're out of time. I'm going to leave you with this. What's your value system? What do you value? What are you really holding on to? Is it, are you holding on to the stuff where if Jesus were to come back right now, would he look at that and say, you're a hypocrite? It's not that those things aren't important. It's just that you didn't do anything with them. Or are you valuing really trusting and following Jesus into action, into loving people actively, into doing something with your love? That means not just you know, work in the, the pantry at church and those kind of things. Those things are great. And that's the stuff that Jesus is talking about. Let's feed people. Let's take care of people. But it also means what he talked about in chapter 24, the gospel going out despite persecution, despite being killed, despite earthquakes and fires and everything else, despite all that stuff, the, the world is going to keep turning and going on. But one thing is going to continue. The word of Christ is going to go out into all the world. Are you going to be part of that as well? Are you going to serve and love people? And are you going to teach them about Christ? Are you going to be teach? Are you going to teach them that they can be saved? Are you going to teach them how to trust and follow Jesus? Remember, that's what discipleship means, helping people trust and follow Jesus. That's what it means to, to grow disciples, to make disciples. You've been listening to a lot of lessons from me. You've been now through uh, 13 lessons in Matthew. Many hours you have sat and listened to these lessons. And I think... Jesus would ask, what's changed? 
What have you changed? What have you allowed the word of God to change in your life? Are you still holding on to the same things that you were holding on to? Be careful because all that stuff's going to be destroyed and wiped away one day. C.S. Lewis has a, a great sermon called The Weight of Glory. And it, it, I won't read it, but it, it, he, he paints the picture that um, everything is going to be destroyed one day except for souls. Souls are, are the only immortal thing. Well, this house is going to be burned up. The whole internet's going to be burned up. The White House, every nation, everything's going to be burned up. It's all going to be destroyed. The only things that are going to be left are the people, are the, are the people we know. We're the immortals. And are we living life where we're helping people grow into something beautiful that's going to be loved and brought into Jesus's kingdom? Or are we letting people go to a place of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? In all the lessons that you've listened to, what's changed? Have you changed? Have you changed anything about what you're doing? This is a serious and critical lesson from Jesus. And it's something that, that we need to chew on for a while. So um, consider your value system and consider, are you fully and actively trusting and following Jesus? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.